welcome back to Generals and Napoleon. Episode 56, General Duroc, Napoleon's Jack of All Trades. We have a very, very, very special guest on the phone once again, my good friend Irene Kim. Uh, say hello, Irene. Hi. Hi, Bear. <laughs> if you don't remember Irene, she did a fabulous episode um, um, a few episodes ago on uh, Colin Corps. And I thought it'd be interesting to discuss another general who, in, in many respects, is very similar to Colin Corps and Duroc, correct? Uh-huh. Similar, but uh, different in details. Um, that's, uh, I think, uh, where we'll get really interested in. Yeah, indeed. And, uh, you know, long service to Napoleon, uh, very supportive of Napoleon throughout his career. Mm-hmm. And um, just an interesting guy. Unfortunately, he met with an untimely death, right? Right, right. Yeah, like, yeah. you know, at the most unexpected time of his career. Mm-hmm. Very Yeah, tragic. yeah, yeah. It was tragic. But, um, yeah, let's jump in. Um I'll give you the honor if you'd like to pronounce his name in French for me, his full name. <laughs> well, I have been studying French, but obviously, uh, you know, I'm not to be like relied on too much. But he was, uh, you know, born Gerard Christophe Michel Du Spaced Rock on 25 <laughs> October 1772 in Pont-Tamousson, Nancy District in northeastern France um, in the former uh, Duchy of Lorraine. Right. And I think you did pretty good there with that pronunciation. Very nice. <laughs> Very nice. And he was from a noblesse de robe family. Can you explain that one, one more time for us? Oh, that's right. So the French nobility could be uh, categorized into two uh, main tiers. The tier one being the noblesse de paix, meaning uh, the nobles of the sword. And they were usually uh, very antiquated uh, families, like dating back to, um, you know, as early as the times of the crusade. Mm-hmm. And they earned their title uh, by merit, uh, which meant um, military service under the king. Mm-hmm. And the tier two, uh, the noblesse de la robe, which literally means nobles of the robe, um, they uh, meant nobles uh, who acquired their titles through um, other means. And they often, um, you know, try to elevate their status by intermarrying with uh, the poor people of the noblesse um, de, le, uh, de Lepe. And the percentage breakdown was about um, 70 to 30 percent, uh, no, 30 to 70 percent between the noblesse uh, de la, um, Lepe and noblesse de la Robe. Mm-hmm. And the percentage of um, the uh, second category uh, grew proportionally larger uh, at the, you know, um, on towards the eve of the French Revolution. And his father was a captain of dragoons in the Royal Army. Did he have a, a privileged upbringing or how was his uh, early life? Okay, it's quite complicated because first of all, um, his father had all of his children quite um, you know, late, late in his life. Mm-hmm. So as you said, um, his father, Claude Sidonie Michel du Space Rock, um, was mm-hmm. born in 1720. And like you said, um, yeah, he served as the first captain um, of the, you know, first captain of a um, squadron of dragoons during the mm-hmm. Seven Years' War. Mm-hmm. And he was also um, dubbed the Knight of St. Louis uh, for his service during the Seven Years' War in 1753. And he had a total of 34 years of military service from wow. 1734 to 1767. But mm-hmm. um, in the middle of his service, he uh, felt like his hearing loss problems were becoming worsened um, every day. So mm-hmm. he um, suddenly retired, announced his retirement. 
but he made a critical mistake here. He asked for uh, nothing more than a military pension from the king. And this had the consequence of um, sinking his future family into uh, poverty, unbefitting of his lineage and status. Mm. So after his retirement, he moved to Pongta Musong um, in the Lorraine region, where he met a widow named Anne Dauphine Papigny. Claude Sidonie, um, the father of Duroc, uh, meets her at her town uh, Mirecourt, and the marriage was consummated there. And the couple went to live in Pongta Musong, where mm. um, Claude would live until um, his death uh, in 1809. And the couple had uh, four children. The first, Pierre, born in um, 1769, uh, who became a priest. The first daughter, born in 1770, who became a nun, um, like her older brother. And then the third son was Gerard Christophe, uh, born in 1773, the only one of his sons who would uh, follow his profession and become the most renowned among them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's where it gets interesting because young Dirac uh, enters military school in 1781 mm-hmm. and he emerges eight years later as a second lieutenant of artillery. Right. Um, but in 1792, he opposes the new revolutionary government and becomes a counter-revolutionary soldier in the Condé army, which is like mm-hmm. a, a royalist army, correct? Yes, it is. Okay. So it's a particularly dangerous time to be a noble in France. With the overthrow of the king and, you know, nobles being put to the guillotine, I mean, what were the options for the nobility? I mean, you could either leave the country, you could join the counter-revolutionaries, or submit to the new government and hope they don't guillotine you. Is that pretty much your options? Yeah, that's uh, pr- that's pretty much correct, I think. <laughs> and um, you know, plus, you know, there were gray um, areas like uh, what Giraffe chose to do, you know, first um, enroll um, after, you know, um, his school in the army of uh, Bakonde, and then to uh, feel extremely disillusioned about how um, disorderly, you know, um, they looked. Or uh, to borrow um, the words of his uh, friend Marmon, he thought, Duroc's natural good sense soon made him comprehend the confusion prevailing among the emigres. So mm-hmm. he returned to France and came to Metz, where uh, Marmont was then in garrison. And then he told Marmont, uh, who was also his um, classmate alongside um, General Foy, what had mm-hmm. happened to him his, uh, and his resolution to re-enter the service of um, the new France. Interesting, yeah. Well, after the successful Battle of Valmy under future... Uh, Marshal Kellerman, mm-hmm. um, the new revolutionary government becomes more stable. Dirac changes his mind and leaves the Royalists. And in 1793, yeah. he joins the Revolutionary Army, works his way up to captain. Do we know how we met Napoleon? I know you mentioned Marmont there. Do you know? Mm-hmm. I know he's made aide de camp to Napoleon. Do you, know, do you know how they met? Oh, yes. It's from the 1st of June, 1793, uh, when, you know, he is appointed the second lieutenant of the 4th Regiment in the Martin's Horse Artillery Company. He partook in um, the captures of Avignon, Marseille, and um, then Toulon, um, you know, where he first met Napoleon, then an obscure artillery officer from Corsica who came right. to replace his wounded commander, De Martin. Right. Mm-hmm. Very interesting, though, that you know he meets Napoleon very early on and then realizes, like, hey, I want to devote my life to this up-and-coming officer, this Napoleon guy. Um, He distinguishes himself in several battles in Napoleon's famous Italian campaign. Can you speak to his level of devotion to Napoleon? Was it immediate, 
or did he kind of grow to kind of blindly follow Napoleon like uh, Marshal Bessier or Junot? I believe that he certainly uh, fell to Napoleon's um, charms like much earlier because it's in the middle of the siege of Toulon that um, he got uh, promoted again to um, you know, promoted again. And then, um, you know, in his campaign of Italy, um, after um, before or after the Battle of Arcole, he uh, becomes appointed as one of the eight AD camps of Napoleon based on um, his merits and courage. Mm-hmm. So here is a um, you know contesting of two contested accounts of how he came to be um, appointed the new ADC. So after Arcole, Napoleon, um, many of Napoleon's aide de camps um, had either died or um, become wounded. So Napoleon um, decided that he needs new ones. And back then, uh, Duroc was the ADC to General Lespinas, who was commander of the artillery of the Army of Italy. And Lespinas argued that Napoleon demanded him for uh, demanded him to give him one of his um, ADCs, and um, he, you know, generously offered Napoleon Duroc, saying, "It's the best present I can give you." But Marmont kind of says the opposite: it, that it's after the Battle of Arcole between 15th to 17th November 1796 that Napoleon personally consulted Marmont on replacing the ADCs lost. Mm. And Marmont says he proposed Duroc, who ended up being selected. Such was the origin of his future. Duroc constantly remembered it and even felt a sincere friendship for me, which time only strengthened. So Duroc became um, the third of the eight new ADCs to Napoleon, um, who, if you don't mind, um, I can like describe um, phrase by phrase. Sure. Yeah. Okay. The first was Junot. Admire for his instance of um, intrepidity at the siege of Toulon, as well as his clear and neat handwriting. The second, Marmont, then a colonel of artillery with his um, unbound passion for glory and ambition. The third was Duroc. Now, here's the interesting bit. Um, Count Lavalette acknowledges that he was less brilliant than the two former, but possessed a greater solidity of judgment and a remarkable tenaciousness of character. And... Uh, he was always very grateful as well. Like, just like his father, uh, who retired without asking anything more from the king, Duroc um, just took, like, you know, his duty of being loyal to Napoleon for granted. And that's what astonished most of people during this space. And the remaining uh, four were uh, the 17-year-old Lumaroy, covered with wounds, and Sulkowski, the polyglot, uh, Polish emigre who had fled after the siege of Warsaw, Mm-hmm. And who later became appointed to the mystery to um, Constantinople. Mm-hmm. And then there was 16-year-old Louis Bonaparte. And mm-hmm. lastly, there was Crossier, a brave and clever officer of cavalry. And basically, Duroc, uh, from this appointment, uh, would follow his general everywhere and f- um, even fought with um, great bravery. One of the two of the most distinguishing um, you know, incidents being that at Primolano, 7 September 1796, where he had a horse killed right under him. Mm-hmm. And 19th March 1796, when, um, you know, he uh, led the passage of Isonzo, after which Napoleon wrote to the directory uh, in praise of him. Citizen Duroc, my ADC and captain, behaved with the bravery that characterizes the staff of the Army of Italy. So such was, you know, um, the... Um, um, descriptions of his uh, career during um, his Italian expedition. 
Yeah, and it must have been hard to shine. I mean, you mentioned a lot of aide-de-camps there who Napoleon was very fond of. Uh, Junot, Marmont, his brother Louis, obviously. Yeah. Uh, so for Duroc to kind of stand out from that pack, I think is very interesting. Yeah, and especially given that um, he wasn't particularly known for his military talents, um, it's remarkable like how much a pers- the extent of devotion alone can um, you know, attract the um, attention of um, your superior, I'd say. Well, you also mentioned his astute judgment, Dirac's judgment. And I know later in the career of Napoleon, he would of- often, if he needed counsel or, or good judgment, he would seek Dirac, don't, correct? Yes, like uh, from just um, distributing orders to uh, delivering the most um, sensitive issues, Napoleon always um, consulted Duroc. Well, moving on in our story, um, he accompanies Napoleon on the Egyptian campaign and is wounded at Abu Kir. And he's one of the chosen few who gets to leave Egypt with Napoleon in 1799, and he assists his coup for power. Um, so, yeah, he must have been amongst the the very few that, you know, Napoleon really wanted at his side during this critical time. Definitely. I mean, um, when you look at like his performance um, during the Egyptian expedition, he really um, you know tried to um, consolidate the morale of the soldiers, which was like um, toppling apart um, by the time of the siege of Jaffa. So, yeah. for instance, he saw his grenadiers fall and um, becoming, you know, utterly demoralized. And then um, he rushes at their head and struggles hand, hand to hand against several Turks. The mm-hmm. army um, sees him disappear in a fiercely defended citadel, def- defended citadel and believes him to be lost. But soon um, he reappears um, on the platform, master of the tower and rampart, which earns mm-hmm. um, the praise of his um, grenadiers. Then he was wounded twice, actually. First, during the siege of um, St. John Docker on 8th May, when um, the French uh, tried to launch a counteroffensive without enough support. Duroc, according to um, Bourrienne, who was like his um, best friend during this time and Napoleon's secretary, mm-hmm. he was in, in his trench and was wounded in his right thigh by the bursting of a howitzer fired against the um, fortifications. Mm-hmm. But um, it accidentally, it, um, you know, he was lucky that it only, um, you know, caused a minor laceration on his thigh without um, touching his bone that much. Right. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. And he's unquestionably brave, but I don't think he gets enough credit. He was a pretty good general, as we'd find out. Like he was he was pretty talented in that area. Yeah. And the um, reciprocated by, you know, naming him um, the premier aide de camp to consul, 
on 17th October 1799, uh, before, mm. you know, um, his return, to, uh, just, uh, just a week after his return to France. Yeah, and um, I want to talk about some, well, it's, it's going to be a tough question, but let me, let me just give a little backstory. In sure. 1800, he serves Napoleon at the Battle of Marengo. He's promoted to general of brigade and is sent on several diplomatic missions to Austria, Russia, Denmark, and Sweden. Mm-hmm. He seems to me very similar to Colin Court, but what do you think their differences were? I mean, they do, they, they're both generals, they both serve as diplomats, but they were sort of different, don't you think? They were both workaholics, but yeah, um, there are um, quite subtle, but, um, you know, um, very um, key differences between um, these two men. Mm-hmm. First of all, I would say is the scope of their diplomacy, the scope and tenure of their diplomacy. So Durov was um, sent to the Prussian um, court uh, three to four times, I believe, um, from, you know, the time right after the Brumaire coup to um, the time after Napoleon's um, entrance to Berlin after the war of the Fourth um, Coalition. But mm-hmm. he was also um, present at um, the Treaty of uh, Schönbrunn and, um, you know, multiple paid uh, multiple visits to Copenhagen, Stockholm and even Basel, uh, Basel Switzerland. And he was constantly moving between one place to another. So compared to um, Colin Corr, who spent um, his time in St. Petersburg from um, 1808 to um, 1810 and cultivated a very deep relationship with the Tsar, I would say uh, his scope was uh, broader and um, lighter in terms of um, commitments. Right. um, Yeah. Another key difference would be in terms of um, their attitude towards Napoleon, now Duroc was um, often described as um, too, you know, too devoted, mm-hmm. too devoted to the extent of being um, uncritically uh, loyal to Napoleon, like mm-hmm. almost as if like he was more submissive than um, brave sometimes. So if Napoleon like gives him a very difficult errand, like um, for example, right after um, the Battle of Vienna and uh, Austerlitz. Uh, when Duroc, um, you know, went to the Prussian diplomats demanding extremely punitive um, terms of, you know, peacemaking, Duroc um, would just go forth. Whereas, um, I believe, if that was Colin Corr, he would, um, you know, ask Napoleon to uh, amend the terms um, in a, you know, more um, conciliatory manner, so as to um, avert the long-term um, deterioration of relationship. But Duroc right. uh, wasn't really the person to do that. And he would never uh, criticize the emperor directly, whereas uh, Colin Corr often um, you know, felt free to speak up. And Baron, Baron Castellan, one of the other aides-de-camps to Napoleon, he actually made this comment um, before um, their invasion of Russia. Napoleon um, looks for, looks for uh, Duroc when he wishes to hear something more comfortable, while um, he sees Colin Corr's um, this, you know, untainted... Um, very objective assessment of the re- of reality. Whenever uh, he needs to kind of you know feel um, tense about what's going on. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting point right there. Yeah, yeah. Both smart men. Both came from nobility. But uh, you're right. Maybe Dirac was more unblindly loyal than Colin Corr, who gave him more of a, a critical opinion. Right. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, moving along in the story. He's made Grand Marshal of the Palace, where he has many duties, including the personal safety of Napoleon, both at home and on campaign, which seems to me like a difficult task. 
Um, according to historian Phil Dwyer, there were 20 to 30 attempts on Napoleon's life throughout his career. Mm-hmm. So that's one aspect of the job is protecting Napoleon. What else does the Grand Marshal do? Okay, so the scope of his, um, you know, job, like, it's quite nebulous and almost like, you know, without like any bounds that I really admire his capacity for multitasking in this regard. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was elected, appointed uh, the Grand Marshal of the Palace on 2nd February. On the same day, he became the Grand Officer of the uh, Legion of Honor. And um, from that time, Napoleon the Emperor uh, had the unlimited confidence placed on him. Basically, uh, he would continue um, his diplomatic missions according to Marmont's um, description, always overburdened with employment and oppressed with fatigue and ennui to such a degree that he was at times like one to murmur against favor and um, greatness. And inside um, the palace, he managed the household supplies and expenses of emperor at home and when he was on campaigns. And these included like extremely miscellaneous tasks like distributing um, every order for the allocation of resources across the army units, mm-hmm. telling um, just men um, on conquered territories what to do. Europe would also um, supervise festivities, trying to do so without making the guests uncomfortable. For instance, uh, at a ball in 1810, he, um, you know, he and Napoleon hosted um, a ball to celebrate his victories against um, Austria in 1809. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Napoleon and Duroc uh, went similarly disguised in a plain black domino, domino and common mask mm-hmm. to mingle freely with the crowd while making, um, not making, you know, um, not making anyone discover them. And at the same time, Duroc made sure that every exit was guarded by a battalion of sentries um, mm-hmm. in a very discreet manner, again, to not right. to in the mood. Right. And Duroc was also... Um, tacitly responsible, I should say, for delivering um, every sensitive intelligence or information from uh, Napoleon to everyone else. So one day, uh, Napoleon joked that a hat maker named Despo was uh, to be expelled from the palace because um, he was responsible for Josephine's excessive spending, I believe. But <laughs> Savari took this too seriously and actually got to action. He was about to like kick her out of her carriage until mm-hmm. Duroc like heard this and ordered him to stop, that um, the emperor was just joking. Yeah, yeah. It's it. It almost sounds like a, a Marshal Berthier type of life, where you're you're handling very important operations, like uh, you know guarding the emperor and you know uh, allocating money for the troops, but you're also handling like minuscule tasks, like you know, like like you just you know gave examples to, like it. It seems like a jack-of-all-trades type of job where you have to do big things and little things all at once. He is, he is. And, like, you know, regardless of how frivolous uh, some of those tasks may sound, clearly, like, if handled um, wrongly, then they had the potential to escalate into something more serious. So Napoleon really had um, all his trust um, placed in Duroc in this regard. So, um, like, one night, Duroc was seen being severely um, reprimanded by Napoleon, for um, neglecting to transmit an order. And Lawrence, you know, was very surprised to hear how, um, you know, apparently, um, you know, frivolous this task was. It was um, an order regarding the regulation of private breakfasts at the palace, which he had um, given Duroc the evening before. 
-hmm. And the order had been delayed um, by just a few hours, but Napoleon um, insisted that an additional delay day's um, expense would be just too much for him. Mm. Yeah, that's just <laughs> yeah, yeah, like you wouldn't think someone would, would get yelled at over like that kind of an order. But, you know, I guess in Napoleon's mind, there were no big orders or small orders. They were all the same. Yeah. yeah. Um, moving along, um, he's promoted to general division. And a few years later, at the epic Battle of Austerlitz, he commands the famed Grenadiers of Udino. I think Udino was injured, uh, as, as he always was. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. He had a um, you know, ball through his thigh at the Battle of Hollebrun on 16th mm -hmm. November. But um, Urino, um, you know, as Urino um, always was, uh, insisted on giving, on giving commands and remaining um, at the field um, until the day uh, before the Battle of Austerlitz. And at that daybreak, um, Urino was still giving orders to the generals on the road to Olmutz and even tried mounting his horse. So Napoleon uh, approached him and said, your courage is beyond your strength. I shall give your grenadiers to Duroc and you can stay with me. So upon receiving the order, now we see, um, you know, how a discerning Duroc can be when it comes to, you know, maintaining uh, relationships between uh, marshals um, and generals in mm -hmm. Napoleon, which could sometimes like um, escalate into volatile um, competition and politics. Indeed. He told Udino humbly, my dear general, this elite corps owes its reputation to you. It's you who will command it. As for me, I will nominally, obviously, march under your order. And this uh, this view spread through the camp like wildfire and, um, you know, raised the morale of the same grenadiers who had been um, sulking about um, the, you know, uh, scheduled absence of his, um, you know, of their general. Mm -hmm. and these I love that story. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's great. You know, yeah. like they were, they were both courteous to each other. Mm -hmm. um, and as you mentioned later on, you know, the marshals tend to bicker more often than the generals, but it just shows mm -hmm. that Duroc is very courteous. It's remarkable that like um, how he rarely got into um, the so-called office politics in the marshalate. And, mm -hmm. and these, you know, anecdotes show um, how, you know, Duroc uh, managed to do that, like managed to, you know, earn the esteems of lots of people without incurring any one of them's um, jealousy. Yeah, in um, 1806, yeah, he handles the delicate negotiations with the defeated Prussians. And again, I think he does a good job there, don't you? Oh, yes. So that, um, that was like a uh, you know, really, um, how should I say, really a tormentuous um, project he had um, embarked on, you know, mm -hmm. um, because um, by that time when um, Napoleon and Duroc and others entered um, Berlin, um, all the nobles had uh, fled. And uh, Frederick William and Queen Louise had fled towards um, Konigsberg with the remnants of their army. And Napoleon, uh, for Napoleon, it was imperative that um, he uh, drags Prussia back to the um, orbit of the um, Emperor of the French um, against uh, Russia, you know, which had um, successfully, you know, um, goaded um, Prussia to um, Know, join um, its or its own orbit, but mm -hmm. now that um, the Prussia was um, paying its toll by uh, multiple defeats in every corner um, of its um, territory, Napoleon um, commissioned Duroc to engage in an interview with the Prussian um, envoy named uh, Lucchesini, who um, Napoleon personally very uh, much disliked. So mm -hmm. Napoleon, uh, you know, purposely purposefully sends Duroc because um, he knows that Duroc will. Um, Duroc will confer with him in an extremely um, inflexible manner, 
no compromise. Um, mm -hmm. Now that you know Prussians had um, you know given up after uh, multiple resistance, Napoleon was bent on you know uh, repaying the benefits of his um, victory. Mm -hmm. So they um, engage in multiple um, interviews three times from um, you know 20th October to um, 26th October, when uh, Luchesini finally uh, returns to Frederick William's headquarters and realizes that um, behind this um, proposal by Napoleon that um, a sincere desire be desire that um, he has a sincere desire to reestablish the old relationship between Prussia and France were actually a set of extremely retaliatory um, demands against mm. Prussia, which was like um, raising um, the re remaining nobility um, outside um, Berlin to right. um, protest against um, the French control. And Duroc here um, really um, influences Napoleon to um, show a degree of clemency, uh, quite unlike him in the later phase of his career. Mm -hmm. So that since um, all the nobility had uh, fled, a provisional um, government was operating in Berlin under General Prince um, Hatzfeld. Mm -hmm. Now Napoleon um, really, um, you know, scorned him. He was actually quite disgusted about him. Napoleon thought he was um, actively communicating with his own king um, on ex on a virtual exile to foment um, di another discord between him and um, the Prussians. So Napoleon uh, one day suddenly um, demands that he be court-martialed, um, possibly to be um, sentenced to um, you know the most extreme measures. So right. Concord, Duroc, and Berthier um, tries to you know appease the um, anger of anger of Napoleon, and Rapp also um, joins, and together um, this mini coalition of four uh, try to uh, try to you know persuade Napoleon against um, a against you know doing doing um something that would incur a further resentment by the conquered population right so this um compels napoleon to visit princess hatsfield's quarter who was um eight months pregnant and was trembling at the prospect of um, her husband suddenly becoming killed mm. and napoleon um pays her a visit and um, says your husband madame has brought himself into an unfortunate scrape According to our laws, he deserved to be sentenced to death. But General Rapp, um, give me his letter. Here, madame, read this. After, after um, she read her husband's um, letter, letter, which Napoleon um, had accused of for um, fomenting discord, he says, um, now um, I have no other proof against the Prince of Hatzfeld, madame. He uh, just burnt, throws the letter into the fireplace and declares, therefore, um, he's at liberty. So Berthier, Duroc, Colincourt, and um, Rapp um, really um, had the effect of saving the life of Prince ha um, Prince Hatzfeld. That's amazing. Yeah, I've never heard that story. That's incredible. Yeah, he just sounds like a, a very astute, smart guy. Like he knows how to read a room and, and make the right decision. Yep. So he really um, helped uh, smooth it, soften um, the process of negotiation. And it was he who was present at the signing of the um, armistice on 16th November uh, between um, himself and the Prussian envoys Zastrov and Luchesini. That's and right. Napoleon here declares the campaign against uh, Prussia is uh, finished mm -hmm. and realizes that he needs to um, continue the war um, you know, on the east of uh, Vistois because the Russians would not be um, stopped by um, this peacemaking with Prussia. 
Right. Rolf also actually um, continues um, to accompany Napoleon when he, um, against, against the Prussians, will crosses the um, Victoire to meet the Russians. But here, um, Duroc, um, so in, on, in the middle of his um, passage, um, he becomes seriously uh, wounded on his left clavicle after his carriage crashes on a falling ground. Mm. And he sent to uh, recover at a nearby village while Napoleon continued his um, journey eastward. Uh, this implies that the story of um, Duroc um, having delivered um, Napoleon's love letter to Marie Walewska while um, he visited, visited Warsaw, um, that, that story could have been fabricated because um, Duroc um, did not recover for um, a month or two. Right. Yeah, no, it's... And a lot of interesting backstory there of um, this campaign. But I know Napoleon was very pleased with the rock. And in 1808, he makes him Duke of Friol. Yes. Can you tell us a bit about the personal life? I know he and Napoleon's stepped out of Hortense had an interest in each other. Uh, but obviously that, that didn't work out because Hortense was uh, paired with Louis Napoleon, uh, uh, Napoleon's brother. Was Durac ever married? What, what happened with his personal life? So, speaking of his um, private life, it's a bit complicated. Uh, Hortense did have a liking for him, but Duroc, um, you know, according to multiple sources, rarely returned her affection. Mm. So, but they did remain in communication before um, his marriage, and everyone at the Malmaison um, knew about um, the thing going on between them. And initially, um, Napoleon um, did give an did entertain the idea of a union between his, um, you know, loyal subordinates and um, you know, Hortense. Mm -hmm. So according to Hortense's biographer uh, named Robert Berhan, both Josephine and Napoleon, um, you know, kind of uh, monitored uh, what was going on. Josephine um, tried to, um, you know, frame it as a one-time thing, like considering her feelings not very deep-rooted and Duroc um, not worth her time. But Napoleon like um, grew to see them more clearly over the time and thought, even considered raising Duroc's rank in advance to be uh, more befitting, uh, befitting to be you know, that of his um, stepdaughter's husband. Mm -hmm. But Josephine um, eventually um, became very opposed to the idea and would um, personally like intervene um, on behalf of Hortense and there is a, a family drama between this. Josephine um, could sense Napoleon um, growing distance from her mm. and was also like keen on marrying Hortense off to one of Napoleon's own kins so that uh, she could uh, consolidate the family tie. Um, right. I think that's, yeah. that, that's a great point. Yeah, I just um, recently did an episode on Hortense and, and uh, Beatrice Knight mentioned that was one of Josephine's ideas was to tighten or firm up the family bond between her family and Napoleon's family. Right. So it's like a mini uh, real politic in the Malmaison. And Josephine had valid reasons to um, you know, support this idea because Napoleon's brothers uh, were also quite antagonistic towards Josephine. Mm -hmm. And um, they began to like support the marriage uh, for a more sinister purpose. They thought um, the marriage could um, help separate Josephine from Hortense and, um, you know, make uh, the Bonapartes acquire a greater influence over um, the others at Malmö. Interesting. That's a good point. Yeah, yeah, I never thought about that. Yeah. So the question becomes, uh, so was it a mere fling or not? 
Well, the Secretary Burian um, states that every time, um, every morning, he played um, billiards with Hortense. And Hortense, like, um, he gave Hortense uh, a letter from uh, Duroc, he says, and she would um, just retire to her chamber immediately, read the letters, often filled with tears of joy and emotions, and it would take it a while for her to return to the billet room. But on 9th August 1802, Duroc um, ends up marrying someone else. Mm -hmm. It was um, the daughter of a wealthy Spanish court banker named Marie de um, Niguez Martinez de um, Herbas, mm -hmm. born in 1788. Mm -hmm. And why is that? Well, um, I think according to um, both Constant, the uh, valet of Napoleon and Bourrienne, uh, Duroc could have Duroc could have married her any time um, if he wanted to. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, Hortense, because Napoleon was increasingly becoming supportive of the idea. Mm -hmm. But Duroc was um, back then on the lookout for something better, with his customary prudence, and one day flatly refused the suggestions that he marry um, Hortense. Mm -hmm. I personally think um, this decision stemmed from his um, experience of poverty under his uh, failing family, like um, a decade and a half ago, that um, he thought um, someone, someone else than um, a family of um, the, you know, Bonaparte's could um, offer him a better fortune. Mm -hmm. And Constant, uh, Constant later um, kind of mocks him. Um, that he probably repented his rashness later on when the crowns were becoming distributed to everyone who was related to Napoleon. Right. But he marries this woman on August 1802. Um, strangely, on the same day um, two years ago when Murat and Caroline got uh, married. Right. And the marriage was uh, viewed um, as unfavorable by many of the spectators. Now, Hortense um, would be, you know, um, just devastated um, on the scene. Yeah. Louis Bonaparte and his bride were um, said to look very sad, and she openly wept bitterly during the ceremony, and mm -hmm. she would continue to avoid her husband, who had grown estranged from her. Mm -hmm. And Josephine tried to um, you know, divert Hortense's um, you know, attention by bring, trying to you know, um, mend the rift between um, the couple. But mm -hmm. it didn't really help, and it broke um, the onlooker's heart to see this. And what's more was that the woman, um, Marie, um, the new wife of Duroc, was um, viewed as very uncultured. Mm -hmm. She was um, described as a little woman, um, very dark and very thin, who was vivacious, but um, very ungraceful, and was fond of humor of the most acrid nature, and was seen as like, very arrogant, exacting, and capricious temper. I right. think she sort of had an anger management disorder because one day uh, yeah, she would throw tantrums at people like um, you know, someone who came to fix um, her piano and even um, at once like threw her expensive watch just out of whim. Mm. But later on, the couple um, grew very content with each other and she was, her reputation was redeemed as an example of tender devotion to duty and a force of her character during all the awful misfortunes which have befallen her and her husband. Did she and Dirac have children? Yeah, they had a son and a daughter. The son was named Napoleon Louis, um, born in 1811, and <laughs> a daughter named Hortense Lejeunie. Now that's strange. Um, that is strange. Born the year after that, yep. That is, that's very strange. I mean, yeah. 
Napoleon, everyone in France was naming their son Napoleon at the time, but uh, mm-hmm. to name your daughter after your former girlfriend, that's, that's, that's interesting. Yeah. Really speaks to, you know, how fond Napoleon was to rock. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Well, moving along in the story. Okay. Um, in 1812, Dirac accompanies Napoleon throughout the Russian invasion and suffers through the highs and mostly lows of that campaign, uh, where yes. obviously, you know, most of the army dies or is killed or deserts during this invasion. Do you think if there was a time for Dirac to lose faith in the greatness of Napoleon, it was here? Do you think he ever he ever doubted his emperor? Oh, yes. In fact, I think um, I saw the signs um, just before um, the beginning of the Russian campaign. Now, to um, you know, give it a bit of context, between 1810 and 1811, Napoleon was basically um, bullying um, Colin Cord, who had just returned from Russia, right. because Colin Cord would uh, refuse to you know, admit that Tsar Alexander was keen on um, engaging in another war with France. So mm-hmm. Colin Cord, uh, um, for multiple times, um, protests that he will either um, quit or stop talking about Russia altogether. And it's here um, Duroc, um, you know, constantly um, intervenes on behalf of them to, you know, save um, their uh, relationship from falling apart. For instance, um, you know, when Colin Corr complained to Duroc that he must retire because everything has become so tiresome, Duroc Mm -hmm. um, tells him, less than ever is this the moment to take such a step. You'll lose your friends and ruin yourself. Have Mm -hmm. patience and things will straighten out. Just now the emperor is annoyed with you, but he holds you in his team. He's even fond of you. It's absurd of you to take the Russian business so much to heart. Since you cannot hope to uh, change the emperor's plans, why irritate him? And right. yeah, Duroc basically um, <laughs> helps like, you know, um, Colin Corr stay mentally stable amidst all the drama between uh, Russia and France. Right. But, Duroc also um, showed signs of uh, becoming uh, unstable himself on the eve of his departure. So he was about to um, have his last-minute conversation with Borian, and then a um, courier from Napoleon interrupted their conversation. So after after the um, courier was gone gone in five minutes, Duroc suddenly stamped violently on the floor, and he was shrieking, almost as if cursing Napoleon. That never leaves me a moment's rest. Hmm. So he could sense something was like going wrong in this expedition. But, um, you know, as I have um, you know, told you, as a key um, difference that separated his personality from Colin Corp, he never uh, was intent on um, stopping what the emperor was doing. So, yeah, obviously that goes terribly wrong. And then in 1813, we have the German, uh, the war of German liberation. Mm-hmm. And. Initially, Napoleon does well. He lit, he wins battles at Lutzen and Bautzen. Um, and the victorious Grand Army is, after Bautzen, they're making a slow pursuit of Allied forces who are retreating. And at the town of Reichenbach, can you tell me what happened there? Oh, yes. So on the 22nd, um, Napoleon, now after the Battle of uh, Bautzen, tries to lead Rainier's um, Seven Corps to cross the Markersdorf River to, um, you know, pin down the Russian encampment on the other side of the river. Mm-hmm. And before leaving, Napoleon tells Duroc that fortune is resolved to have one of us today. 
and then um, you know the battle uh, battle recommence. It's a um, it starts out as a um, small sortie and then becomes a full blown exchange of cannonade, where uh, the Russian um, commander, the Duke Eugen of Württemberg, um, manages to hold out for uh, a few more hours. And it was like um, a fire breathing mountain was behind Reienbach, according mm-hmm. to a Saxon general Odelevin, who was still serving under Napoleon. Mm-hmm. And then at 4.30 p.m., the, when the enemy um, occupied a second height between Reienbach and Markersdorf, Napoleon, um, you know, trotted the surrounding air, trotted around the area covered with dead and wounded already. And he himself uh, miraculously dodged several bullets that uh, fell close to him. But during that time, General Bruyeres has um, both of his legs shot off, who mm. um, shortly dies of wounds. Mm. And then it becomes 7 p.m. when Napoleon um, you know, comes to um, greet Mortier, Colincourt, Duroc, and Kurgener towards a hill overlooking an area called um, Niedermarkersdorf, where the cannonade was still um, being heard. Right. Then suddenly, a shell hits Kurgener. And then amidst like um, this dust storm that um, you know causes um, everyone to be virtually blind, um, another shell mortally wounds Duroc, and a page um, soon um, comes to Napoleon and whispers to him that Duroc had been wounded. Yeah, and I hear it was quite a violent um, cannon shot. It ricocheted off a tree, hit Duroc in the stomach, ripping mm-hmm. open his belly and spilling his intestines all over his uniform, saddle, and horse. And yeah, so he was completely disemboweled and was carried um, to a cottage in Markersdorf. Mm. And Napoleon was seen pleading to Dr. Larry, my, my dear Larry, I know well that my wound is... Um, and so Napoleon was pleading to Larry to save him. But, right. Um, you know, um, Duroc was just like um, helplessly saying, my dear Larry, I know well that my wound is far beyond uh, the reach of your art. And according to, um, you know, accounts that have been um, dramatized in Napoleon's um, bulletin, Duroc uh, managed to um, hold on for a few more hours w- mm-hmm. and the emperor went to him and evinced the deepest feelings in a um, you know, most um, touching despair that moved um, everyone around. And Medieval could, uh, Secretary Medieval could see Napoleon remaining there more than a quarter of an hour grasping Duroc's right hand with his own hand resting upon him. Mm-hmm. But Duroc um, kept, you know, um, pushing him away, begging him to go away from so uh, miserable a sight. And mm-hmm. he, he pleaded Larry to give him an extra opium to, opium to put him to sleep. Mm-hmm. And Napoleon, according to what he said in, uh, what he said in the bulletin, which uh, Borean claims to be uh, fictitious, Duroc, there is another world, world, he said, where we shall meet again. And Duroc replied, I have nothing to reproach myself with. Mm-hmm. Afterwards, um, Napoleon um, was leaning on Sult and Colincourt shoulder by shoulder, withdrew himself to his tent, confined himself there, and spent the whole night uh, weeping. Mm-hmm. He wrote to Marie-Louise the next morning when um, Duroc you know, um, was no longer alive. Fancy my grief. You know how fond I was of the Duke of Friol. He was a friend of 20 years standing. Never did I have any occasion to complain of him, for he was never anything but a comfort to me. He's an irreparable loss, the greatest I could suffer in the army. It was a very ominous day, too, because um, it was also the anniversary of the Battle of um, Essling, when, mm-hmm. um, yeah, 
Napoleon's another um, confidant. Um, Marshal Lannes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I think that's interesting. That story, you know, that Napoleon retired to his tent and weeped. People sometimes say Napoleon's like this unfeeling tyrant who has no care for his soldiers. And I know he cried at least on two occasions before with Marshal Lannes and General Goudin's death in um, Russia. So I think Napoleon unfairly gets categorized as an unfeeling person. Mm-hmm. Um, Maybe like he was able to compartmentalize um, his feelings as well, you know. Um, right. One side of his um, mind is the sadness for um, his long-term friends, but, um, you know, he's also constantly thinking about um, the battles ahead of him. That's, Correct. I think, how I like to understand um, these contested claims regarding um, Napoleon's wars um, regarding the people around him. Around yeah, him. that's that's a good point, for sure. Um, I know Napoleon bought the farm where Duroc died and erected a monument to his memory. But here's the interesting part. Um, Napoleon just witnessed Duroc's violent death and not long afterwards asked for an armistice where he seemingly had the allies up against the wall. They were on the run. They lost a couple battles. And a nine-week truce was agreed to by the allies who eventually had time to regroup and defeat Napoleon. Do you think Duroc's death motivated this olive branch by Napoleon? I think um, it was, you know, one of the uh, factors that could have um, expedited uh, Napoleon to, Napoleon's decision because, um, you know, as uh, we can remember, Bestier had um, died um, less than a month before um, mm-hmm. Duroc's death. Yep. And um, it could have, you know, um, insinu- oh, the whole situation could have um, you know, pointed out to Napoleon that his luck um, could have been um, fading, you know that he, ha- he um, his fortune was um, eclipsing. But right. that's the um, interpretation by um, the primary eyewitnesses who um, was able to you know, recount um, both scenes. But on the other hand, I think um, in the longer context, the, um, the interest was rather mutual, the, uh, the need for um, this truth. Because mm-hmm. uh, for Napoleon, it was becoming evident that um, he could not gain a decisive advantage on the upper Elba because mm-hmm. um, the lack of cavalry was incurring constant um, harassment of his flanks yep. by the Cossacks, those, yep. you know, menace. And um, the shortage of forage was becoming uh, more extreme. And it was no exception in Saxony, his only ally in the Confederation of the Rhine. But the other regions were, um, you know, no less worse because um, Metternich um, also um, thought that um, a truce was needed to, you know, bolster um, the remaining armies the um, coalition had while, you know, um, while kind of um, fighting for um, time to um, settle for, you know, something that could be of, you know, mutual interest. Mm-hmm. So it was Metternich who actually made the first move and Napoleon, um, you know, agreed to the decision. But um, right. at the end, it um, you know, bad, it ended uh, really badly after um, you know famous hat in, hat incident and Napoleon's um, you know insistence that he uh, could not you know uh, forsake any of his um, territorial gains, especially um, the Confederation of the Rhine and the Duchy of Warsaw. Right. Yeah, it's just interesting. Um, like you pointed out, he lost Marshal Bessier in eighteen thirteen, then Duroc, and then. He abdicates uh, in 1814 um, and again in 1815. So it's just he's starting to lose a lot of his close confidants towards the end there. And it's uh, just unfortunate. Right. 
1847, uh, Dirac's remains are moved to Les Invalades, um, where he's interred near Napoleon. What do you think Dirac's legacy is? I think, um, personally, being uh, one of the few Napoleon could um, call a friend, um, it kind of pointed to the personal appeal of Napoleon uh, that's um, becoming, you know, quite um, underrated uh, these days because, um, you know, Duroc uh, followed Napoleon everywhere without mm -hmm. um, asking for, you know, any uh, reward in return. Mm -hmm. um, so he, he's, I think, one of the counterproofs um, to the criticism of Napoleon that um, he was an inhumane, um, inhumane tyrant. Rather, I think his existence is, was a proof that um, Napoleon certainly had an um, indisputable personal appeal to, um, you know, those around him, at least, um, you know, um, at least um, during the early uh, phase of his life. And another is that I think he um, also exemplified the pitfall common to many of Napoleon's subordinates, being um, loyal to the um, point of um, lacking you know, critical, uh, lacking criticism of um, their, you know, commander's um, right. faults. Right. Those are two good points right there. And um, Napoleon was surrounded by intelligent men who, who did have good judgment. Uh, you know, Marshal Soult was intelligent, Calancourt, obviously, um, uh, Berthier, very intelligent. And, you know, not until the very end did they kind of question, you know, where, where is this going? Where is this empire headed? And I think the rock probably would have stayed by his side till the very end. I think he was that loyal. Yep. I'm confident about that pretty much. Yeah. yeah. Well, Thank you, Irene. That was a fantastic overview. I um, just really impressive guy, Drock. And uh, yeah, thanks for joining us. Ah, thank you, by the way, for inviting yeah. me once again. <laughs> yeah, my pleasure.